Hello and welcome to First Things First from Mercado. Every month, Mercado CEO Rob Garrison explores the future of the supply chain and the impact of the first mile for thousands of importers around the world. Catch up and listen to the series on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you enjoy this next episode. Hi, my name is Rob Garrison. I'm the CEO of Mercado Labs and welcome to First Things First. Uh, we talk about all things supply chain with a focus on the first mile. Before we get started, we welcome comments on this podcast, and we're going to actually donate uh, from one of the comments uh, to Let's Talk Supply Chain. They've created a really great charity called the Blended Diversity Pledge, and we're proud to be a sponsor of that. So we'll pick one comment out of the show, and, and we'll make sure that we pledge on your behalf and recognition of you. So please check out Blended Diversity Pledge. It's a great charity. So Without further ado, I'm going to uh, jump into what we call the fastest five. So just really quick, want to go through some headlines. It's certainly a very interesting time in the industry. And um, we're wondering if uh, the carriers can possibly make any more money. So I'm going to start there. Um, true story. Uh, Conrad Everhard was the chairman of OCL and at an investor conference. One of the attendees asked him, if it was possible to still make a small fortune in the shipping industry. His response, absolutely, ma'am, as long as you start out with a large one. So I always got a kick out of that. I think Conrad would certainly, unfortunately, he's passed. He'd be rolling over in his grave right now if he heard what I'm about to tell you. So shout out here to Greg Miller, senior editor of American Shipper, with a headline that says, Container Shipping Has Greatest Quarter Ever with More to Come. Uh, calls it history-making profits, and he says supply chain congestion has proven to be an unprecedented money-making machine for carriers. Um, and you're about to find out why. Ocean Network Express uh, had so much profit that their single-quarter earnings now easily exceed their full-quarter earnings pre-COVID. Holy cow. For the third quarter, one reported profit of $4.9 billion dollars up 418% from the same period in 2020. That's amazing. Uh, for the full year, they expect profits of 15.4 billion, which is 4.4 times more than 2020. Unbelievable. Uh, Hatbag Lloyd, not to be undone, uh, announced an extraordinarily strong fourth quarter and full year results. Uh, full year 2021, total 12.8 billion dollars, or four times the 3.1 billion they earned the year before. Let's not forget Evergreen, uh, who made $5.6 billion in the fourth quarter, more than tripling their prior operating revenues. Uh, Costco and LCL are, are one now, as I think everybody knows, but they report earnings separately. Costco uh, made $14 billion for the year, uh, nine times their profit the year prior. Holy mackerel, that's unbelievable. OCL reported revenues of $15.68 billion, up 110% from 20. 20. And last but not least, Maersk, full year EBITDA of $24 billion, almost triple the $8.2 billion that they made in 2020. So I'd love to hear any comments on that. Carriers are rolling in it, uh, no question. Um, so let's call this segment uh, Show Me the Money 2. Uh, this one is about Flexport. And um, shout out to Riley DeLeon from CNBC, who's got a headline that says Freight forwarding firm Flexport raises nearly $1 billion in funding. At Shopify, Michael Dell, and Andreessen Horowitz as investors. Holy cow. Phenomenal investors, a phenomenal amount of money. It goes on to say that they've raised $935 million for a Series A funding 
that boosts their valuation to $8 billion. They've raised $2.3 billion to date. Um, so it's my take on this thing. I, look, I was an early fan of Flexport. I thought this industry could certainly use a little bit of shaking up. And so when I first heard the model, I was pretty excited, if I'm honest with you. Over time, my opinion kind of soured because I started to see the economics and that blending of the freight forwarder economics with the technology economics didn't quite make sense to me. But clearly, they're doing something right. And that's a lot of capital to deploy. So Flexport is certainly one to watch in the category of show me the money. Um, so speaking of carriers, maybe this company has the right idea. There's a furniture maker, manufacturer in Taiwan called LockTech. And according to Insider, Business Insider, sorry, uh, this furniture company called LockTech is shelling out $32 billion to build its own cargo ship. That's right. They're getting into the shipping business. Uh, the $32 million contract with Wanghai Shipbuilding is to build an 1,800 TU cargo ship. The company said it made the purchase to combat shipping delays and meet a surge in online sales. How about that? Uh, furniture Maker is one of many companies to take extra steps to avoid historic challenges in the business. And some of those other companies that they're referring to, um, in the fall, Coca-Cola chartered their own vessels. So did Target. So did Costco. So is this a trend to come? You know, certainly with uh, the availability of space in the vessel and the astronomical rates that are going this may be one solution is that the ocean carriers are starting to get some com competition from their customers. So definitely one to watch. Um, last one in my fastest five here. I just want to talk about this controversial headline. Uh, shout out to Nick Savitas of the Lodestar, who says that Maersk looks set to cut out freight forwarders to attract cargos directly. Huh. I wonder how their, car uh, their clients feel about that. Uh, the Danish carrier has made no secret of its ambition to become the integrator of the seas. Not an ocean carrier anymore, integrator of the seas. In response, Auto Shot, Kuda Nagel's Global Head of Sea Freight, told the Lodestar, Forders have been, are, and continue to be one of the biggest customer groups that they have on their ships. So at least we know how one customer feels. Um, according to James Hookman of the Global Shipples Forum, he speculates that uh, they may launch also, in related to this, uh, a trading platform to develop its integrated approach to supply chains. Uh, although James, too, questions how customers will vote stating the option has always been there to deal directly with the lines, but shippers preferred a more personalized service. One to watch for sure. Okay, that's the fastest five. Again, any comments, welcome. Uh, now what I'd like to do is welcome our first guest on First Things First, and that would be the talented and famous Eddie Hertzman. <laughs> Gotten to know Eddie a little bit over the last few years and Really, really enjoy Eddie on a lot of different levels. He's been a pioneer in the media industry. He started a, a publication called Sourcing Journal, which is the industry source, especially for apparel and footwear importers. But but really, everybody can learn from Sourcing Journal. If you're not a subscriber, please do join. It's a phenomenal read. I read it religiously. So without further ado, Eddie, welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to have you. Thanks, Rob. Uh, honored to be the first guest. Yeah, yeah. We wanted to start this off right. So we started with you. And if you wouldn't mind, can you give the audience just a little bit about your background? Let's let's start there. So everybody kind of knows who uh, Eddie Hertzman is. Absolutely. So very briefly, you know, my background is in sourcing and manufacturing, have worked for uh, both agents and factory direct. I also had my own sourcing business and, and owned a bunch of wholesale uh, uh, brands as well. But really in 2010, my life really changed. I remember sitting in DACA. I was trying to place 100,000 units for a very, very 
recognizable brand who I will not mention, children's sets. And I remember at the time we were dealing with a cotton crisis and the price of cotton was going up every single day. Interesting. And I said to this gentleman, if you don't place by today, it'll be more by lunch. It'll be more by tomorrow. And he said to me, you don't know what you're talking about. I've been doing this more years than you've been alive. <laughs> go down. I remember being so infuriated saying, how is there no resource? Where's the Wall Street Journal of sourcing? Interesting. I literally yeah. went back to my hotel. I bought the, the, the domain, started aggregating links, and boom, 10,000 people signed up, 20,000 people signed up. So I started to build this business. Um, in 2017, I sold it to Penske Media. I, know, I knew I needed a real media powerhouse behind me. I mean, we, we're talking five, six X growth since acquisition. Wow. In addition to that, I I've have some additional responsibility now as uh, the EVP overall Fairchild. So that includes WWD, Beauty Inc., Footwear News, and some other projects that, that we're working on. So um, stumbled into media, but really a supply chain uh, guy at heart. Uh, that's great. I actually didn't know that backstory, Eddie. Thanks for sharing that. In DACA, you thought of the company in DACA of all things. Yeah, I was so I was so mad. I was like, you know, <laughs> you guys insulted me here. <laughs> well, that a lot of great ideas are born out of situations like that. So way to show everybody that uh, th this is this is how you uh, come back as you build something better. So, Eddie, you know, you, you're sort of what I would call the pro to know. Uh, your your first or second degree connection, I think, to everybody in the industry. So I want to start with a question that that'll speak well to your background. In the last, I, I think, I don't know, 20 years since Amazon came on board, particularly in the last 10 years and most recently with COVID, the final mile's kind of blown up, right? We can we can get stuff to our doorsteps now in unprecedented speed, same day in, in many cases. It's kind of crazy, right? But what I've always thought about personally is that all that product, as you mentioned, your cotton sets and DACA comes from. Asia or somewhere abroad, right? And that's what I call the first mile. Uh, from the time we place an order till the time it gets delivered to that warehouse that delivers it to you is what I call the first mile. In your opinion, you know, that that industry, at least from what I can see, hasn't really changed much. So why do you think that the first mile has exploded and the final mile has really stayed pretty static? What, what are your thoughts on that? So I think that's a, it's a two-part question. So I think... And I hate to speak in generalities because I do think we're seeing a lot of progress when it comes to sourcing in the supply chain, which I'm sure we'll get to, Rob. But I think in, in generally speaking, retailers and brands are historically, their buyers are purchasers. And their relationship with product starts ex-factory. It starts at the factory door and then moves backwards. We become spoiled. We send the, the, the IO, the PO, the tech pack, whatever, to the factory. And we just... I think it's all going to you know, show up without, without any issue. When you talk about the last mile, Amazon, to your point, has completely changed the game. You know, before Amazon, you would add shipping, $9.99, extra cost, $7.99. They turned the whole thing upside down. <laughs> they basically, same day, next day, free shipping. And now from maybe a profit center, it's become a cost, cost center for a lot of organizations. And it's also... What Amazon did, which was very interesting, is they made the last mile part of the shopping experience. They made that a competitive advantage. So it's not just what are you selling or what is the price that you're selling. It's how quickly can I get it? And that really, really changed the game. So today, that's a big part of what people look for, especially when you're buying commodity products, right? If I need paper towels, do I want to wait two weeks? No, I want it tomorrow. So 
I, you know, to go back to the, the first the first mile question, um, I, unfortunately, I do think, as I said, a lot of that relationship with product is an X factory relationship. But with a lot of, I, I think COVID changed things in, in this in the sense that we were spoiled when we went to the store. We always had the product we wanted. We didn't have to wait for anything. Now customers like what. Why is it six months for a couch? Why is it I didn't get a book on reference, but they just Foley's uh, out and they just slashed twenty eight hundred jobs. They're, they're struggling, but but today retailers and brands, it doesn't matter how great of a marketer you are, how great of a last mile strategy you have. You could have the greatest collab, the greatest runway, show, whatever it is. But if you don't have anything to sell, what does all that mean? Not for not. So so I think we can no longer take our upstream first mile relationships and factory partners for granted. And we need a strategy that to me, it's not one or the other. It, it's the first mile, the middle mile and the last mile. And so let me pick up on that. Eddie. You said a couple, you said a bunch of really interesting things. So let me, let me take you in uh, one of two directions. Um, you mentioned that Amazon sort of made first mile a competitive strategy. Uh, so one question would be, is it possible? I'm sorry, final mile to be a competitive strategy. Would it be possible? Do you think, to make the first mile competitive strategy. So that's one question. And you also mentioned that you have seen some progress, particularly in sourcing. So maybe you could expound upon that as well. So I'd like, like to unpack those things just a little bit if we could. Oh, I, I think first mile is, is going to be a major, major competitive uh, advantage and strategy. I mean, let's look, you know, I hate to reference Zara because it's, it's such an old case study, but how much of, of their business and their competitive advantage is, is, is based upon their, their, their supply chain and their first mile. Let's look at other companies like Shein today. And I don't want to talk about, yes, they may have gotten some bad press, good press. I'm not here to judge them. They make fast fashion look slow. And it is all, <laughs> it is all a data, search engine optimization, and sourcing game. That is what it is. They understand how to procure product. They reduce so much risk. Because they make the product so quick and in such small batches. And so I think there's also this this term. I don't know. I don't know if it's 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 a I don't know if anyone has quoted it yet, but like whether it's the China model or C2M consumer to, to manufacturer, there's going to be more and more factories that are going to own the relationship with the customer. So like you know, Sheen is able to ship directly from factory and, you know, that that's how they, they take advantage of de minimis and stuff like that. And they, they don't pay duty on billions of dollars of product. I think we're going to see a lot of um, investment from or we are seeing investment from the Alibaba's and the JD's. Why can't the factory start to ship directly to the customer? Why Good can't question. they own brands? So it will be the same way Amazon won in the last mile. I think we're going to see some of the upstream partners start to own that relationship as well. So you're not going to be able to be successful if you don't have a first mile strategy. And also there's a lot of risk now. So, you know, there's, there's two types of risks. There's a, a financial risk in this, in, in the, in the common sense of, of the word, meaning if we tie up so much inventory and it doesn't sell, we have major markdowns and, and we have cash flow constraints. Well, what about the risk from a regulatory and the reputational risk of, you know, you have the Uyghur Force Protection Act. You have the New York fashion law that could pass. We have the Green Deal in Europe. So if your product gets caught up 
at customs and you can't show a chain of custody to get it through, you got a problem. If all of a sudden, if your product is, is being flagged as being made in X region or doesn't meet the sustainability requirements of a new generation, you have a, you have, you have problems. How are you supposed to manage that risk without having a very intimate relationship with your factory partners? I think it's, it's virtually impossible. And I would even argue it's not even a tier one story anymore. It's tier one, tier two, tier three. You have to have great visibility into your entire supply chain. Awesome. That's so much to unpack there as well. I'm afraid we're going to run out of time here, but I, I have to ask this question. So I've been following Zara for 20 years. I agree with you. It's an old case study. But, you know, if you look at what they've done, it's not different than other manufacturing businesses where they built the vertically integrated supply chain. That's essentially what you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. you're, you're essentially talking about a, a make to order model and a, and a rapid response to the customers. And so I couldn't agree with you. And I also agree with your point that Companies that don't have a first mile strategy also may be at risk. So one time to market and competitiveness is the first point you mentioned. And the second one with regard to reputational risk and potentially financial risk if you're not connected. So super interesting. Pack, unpack for me a little bit more about sourcing and or related tier two, tier three suppliers. What did you mean by that? What, what is a tier two supplier? What's a tier three supplier? And why do, why do we care? Well, I think for the most part, when we th when we think about X factory, that's that's typically, you know, who's shipping the goods to us and, and they're the one that's on the, the bill of lading or whatever. But today we need to know where the fabric is coming from. We need to know where the raw materials are coming from. And, and because we need to be able to have that chain of custody, we need to have those transaction certificates because if our goods are stuck at customs and we have to prove where, okay, I'm making this gene. But they need to know where did the cotton originate from. So that factory has to know, let's say you're working with a factory, but they got the, the fabric from X mill. Now you're going down the stream. Where did that mill get their cotton from? So we have to understand that each, each you know, the relationship and the chain throughout the supply chain. Because if we don't do that, the mistake people are making, and there's going to be a massive investment in, 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 in traceability, uh, technology, and, and software. Because for the most part, most of the people that have been stuck at customs have not been able to get the goods through. So therefore, you're sending them back overseas. You're literally sinking the ship. You're, you're selling them off. Think about the, the congestion. Think about how hard it is to get merchandise last year. Think about how delayed it was, how much more expensive it was. And then if you were unable to actually, at, when it finally came through, you weren't able to sell it and you had to turn it around and sell it to a, you know, to a, to a secondary market. You can't afford that risk. We can't afford to lose our merchandise. And now that this is going to be law, it's not like this is, oh, maybe this will happen. We have a, a responsibility, a regulatory responsibility to ensure that we know where our products are being made. Yes. You know, I said when I started Sourcing Journal, I started because of one pain point, increased cotton prices. Today, raw material prices is one of the dozen things. We have to deal with increasing raw material. We have to have, we have wage increases. We have logistics issues. We have last mile issues, first mile issues. Every 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 <laughs> form of, of, of the supply chain has a pain point. We, we're dealing with, as I mentioned before, the Uyghur Force Protection Act. De minimis is under fire right now. Will they? Will they? You know, there's some legislators that like to get rid of that. And for people that don't know, anything under eight hundred dollars that's shipped directly from the factory is duty-free. A lot of DTC brands and companies that do DTC take advantage of this. 
We also have uh, the New York Fashion Law, which could be a game changer because how many companies sell in New York? I would argue to say most of them, and the volume of business is at a point where a large majority of, of both national and international brands will be will be targeted to this. We have these major 2030 commitments that companies have to have to hit for ESG uh, goals. Wall Street now is judging a company based on their ESG metrics. Executive compensation is being tied to this. Stock prices are being tied to this. So we don't have enough time to list all this out. But to think that I started a business 10 years ago because of cotton price increases. And today, <laughs> I guarantee any, any supply chain executive would just wish that would be their only problem. <laughs> Seems simple in hindsight. Holy cow, that was amazing. Uh, so I want to take off two things. First of all, for the audience, uh, Eddie has referenced a term called de minimis a couple of times. It's a technical term, but essentially says that if you bring in goods into the United States with a value of less, less than X dollars, you don't have to pay duties on that. Duties essentially are taxes. And so interesting analogy back to Amazon. There was a long time that Amazon was building their business without having to pay taxes on Internet goods. So uh, there's a there's a really interesting analogy there between what Eddie's describing and and maybe what we were talking about in the first mile or the final mile at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So Eddie, we've got about uh, five minutes left, and I just want to maybe tie in one more theme here for the audience because uh, the mission for Mercado is to shine bright lights in dark corners. Uh, I haven't been to Dhaka, but I've been to a lot of other places, and I haven't always seen the best things in the world. And so I thought, man, if we could put some transparency, you've talked about visibility, traceability, transparency. I'm going to talk about transparency. That would be fantastic. You and I have a mutual acquaintance by the name of John Thorbeck. And John writes a lot of posts. In fact, he's got a, a, pot, a post called First Mob, but he writes a lot of posts about maybe we can also do some good, right? We've talked about all the inefficiencies and all the things we do. Maybe we can do some goods. And so he talks about things like you know, improving supplier partnerships and, and more equal thing. You're talking about ESG and everybody, I think, knows that that means protecting the planet and people. So maybe as we leave this podcast, can you give us your thought on taking it up one level? Is the first mile also an opportunity for people to do some good? It, you know, how, how can we use that connectivity to these suppliers to do better things for the suppliers, for people on the planet? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, again, I, I don't want to, I'm going to make some general statements because I don't think every retailer or brand is, is guilty of this. And I'm not saying every every factory is a saint either. But I think that, and this is not an, a new uh, thing that I'm about to say, but we like to say that, you know, partnership. Oh, we have a partnership with our, with our, with our, with our factories. And, and the reality is we know that's not the case. When prices go up, we ask them to hold price. When prices go down, we ask them for a discount. When they're a day late, we ask them for a discount. When we need the good, it, it, it always seems that the burden falls on them. I had an hour and a half call last night with one of the most reputable, uh, best-in-class denim factories um, in Pakistan. And we were talking about how, you know, retailers and brand had some of the, for many of them, the best year ever in 2021. Now, we could argue is that luck, meaning there was uh, extra cash in everyone's pocket due to stimulus. There was pent up demand. There was a little bit of inventory, so there was better sell through at a higher margin. Or was some there was there some great retail strategy that was employed? I, I think it's a little bit of fool's gold, but that's maybe for another show. But but the point is, a lot of these retailers made more money. Now I can understand that there's inflation and cost of goods are going up. 
Yeah. The factories can't bear this. They, they have no, they can't, they have nothing left to give. We can't keep squeezing, 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 squeezing. Well, what do we tend to do? We like to publicize our ESG goals. We like to publicize our charitable donations. We like to publish our DIE uh, initiatives at, at the corporate level. But time and time again, we have no issue hurting the people upstream. When we canceled all the orders, I shouldn't say we, but like we as an industry canceled a lot of orders uh, during COVID. I can understand it was a survival of the fittest mentality. What are all those millions of workers that their livelihoods were at stake? Now, again, let's let's squeeze them. You know, it's, it's there's nothing left. We're going to have to think about how do we share risk? OK, that's a big part of John Dorbach's uh, thesis is it can't just be you know, the retailers win and the factories lose. And it doesn't mean that the factories have to win and the retailers have to lose, but all the burden and all the risk can't fall on the factory. So how can there be shared risk and shared reward? That's a big part of his thesis. And I think the other thing has to be, and for the people listening, they're not going to want to hear this, is the consumer is going to have to pay a little bit more money. Because I really think we're at a point now where there's, there's no one left to bear the burden. Margins compressed at wholesale. Margins is compressed at the factory level. And, and margin will be compressed this year at retailers or brands. I think that period of really lean inventory, higher sell-through, because as inflation really creeps through, interest rates grows up, stimulus dries up, you know, discretionary spending will go down, and there won't be as much liquidity in the market. So I think these retailers are going to have a little bit of a reality check as we go into the second half of this year. So which means it's going to be hard for them to pass it on. But I don't know where the money's going to come from, you know. But the the answer is to get back to your initial question. The answer is not ship these goods to me, ship these million X, or I'm going to move to another factory. That's not a good way to treat our partners. And I think that has been the relationship for far too long. On that note, an excellent way to end it, Eddie. Thank you very much for joining us here at First Things First. I, I actually was taking quite a few notes myself. You brought up just a lot of phenomenal points. Uh, we welcome you back here anytime. Uh, meantime, if anybody want to reach out, reach out to Eddie, you can reach him through Sourcing Journal. And again, just a phenomenal resource. Knows the industry cold and knows all the players in the industry cold as well. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, great to have you, Eddie. All Always the best. Pleasure, Rob. Thank, you. thank you. See you. Okay, so that was Eddie Hertzman. And uh, hopefully you enjoyed that uh conversation as much as I did. Every time I have a conversation with Eddie, I learn. Uh, I'm just going to close out the segment here with the few minutes that we've got left um, with regard to sort of what I call the, the modern first mile industry. And when I say modern, I'm talking about really, in my mind, there hasn't been a whole lot of innovation for roughly 52 years. Why do I say 52 years? That's when uh, basically the, the container that Malcolm McLean had invented to go onto vessels was introduced into the Asia Pacific trade. And just a little bit of history on that very quickly. One of the first customers of the new modern container was Sears Roebuck. And this sounds crazy today, but back then in the late 60s, early 70s, Sears was the Amazon of their day. They were massively powerful, vertically integrated. Just, you know, everybody knew Sears was, everybody shopped at Sears back then. So they were a pioneer in global trade. When containers came along, uh, they had a little bit of a conundrum, which is, how do I load these things? Prior to that, suppliers had delivered the goods to the pier, and then longshoremen got them onto the boat by hook or by crook, usually literally by a hook. And so um, 
Sealand, who was one of the pioneers in the industry, uh, American flight carrier, they developed a service to accommodate what Sears wanted, which was the ability to load a container. Now, Sealand at the time, and this is according to one of the people who built this industry, I'm old enough, old enough to know the people who built it. I wasn't there when it started, but I was old enough to know some of the people. And this, in this case, happened to be Phil Clark. Uh, Phil Clark said, you know what, we're not going to do this onshore for all kinds of reasons. We'll create a separate division. And they created a division called Buyers and Shippers Enterprises. That division was of Sealand was named after Sears, Buyers, and their shippers. And so kind of a nice little history. Buyers Consolidations is still like uh, Kleenex today. How long that brand has lasted, really a great brand. And basically their job started out to load the containers off dock. And then pretty soon Sears started asking for other services. Can you collect my documents? Can you follow up with the supplier to see if uh, things are on track? What happened next, um, and this is still in the mid seventies, is they started really asking for more detailed information. So they knew that a container was on its way because Sealand would tell them it was, but they needed to know what was inside that container. And so that was the next innovation is, what was called order management. And that service was really built by Ocean Carrier, starting with Sealand. But APL, with their division called American Consolidation, quickly followed. And I think Maersk might have been third or could have been NYK, but we'll say it's Maersk. And Maersk created a version called Mercantile. So their job was to go out to these big importers and capture their purchase order information, hold on to it until there was a booking, match it up, and then give that information back to the importer. And so just think about this way back when full-on purchase order data was being transmitted back then via EDI for sure, but that advanced technology existed back then. Uh, next thing that happened is the forwarder started getting into it. I think Expeditors was the first one to get into that. They bought a company in Taiwan called CMS. Uh, so ECMS was generated and uh, other people soon followed. It's still not a huge industry today, but many, many importers purchase order management services either from carriers directly and or from forwarders. Maybe there's 30 companies providing this service. But if I'm honest with you, that's the last big innovation that I saw in this industry. I happened to be there sort of at the inception with a great carrier like APL. And we did order management, track and trace and all that stuff way back then. But frankly, what I look around now and I see is a sea of sameness. Uh, there's, if you look on Forder's websites today, that you know, there's a plane and a boat and a truck um, on every one of them. So I think we're due. I think we're due now for the next evolution of this industry, the modern supply chain industry, advanced by tech and all these creative ideas and investments that we've talked about today are the next forefront. So we look to unpack that and explore that on next episodes. Meantime, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure hosting you. And if you've got any comments or questions, uh, please feel free to reach out. Rob Garrison at MercadoLabs.com. Thanks all. Bye-bye.